Sometimes you plan a service and you're not sure how everything's going to work out. How many of you are feeling a little disoriented this morning by the hymns, the Psalm 137 that we read this morning? It's a little weird, especially the end part, dashing people against the rocks, not something we like to pray for very often. Um, I encourage you after the morning is over to go back and read some of the lyrics of the hymns that we sang. Um, they were very purposefully chosen, even if the uh, so hymns were a little bit unfamiliar. And was the first one, I don't know if it's technically in a minor key. Was it? It's a minor key, and it really fills that uh, the mood that we want for this morning about what it means to be people in exile. So I know this morning may have seemed a little awkward praying uh, or hearing that Psalm 137. Um, there's some things in the Psalms that maybe aren't for all of us to be going and praying uh, in our lives today, but they're expressions of heartfelt emotions crying out to God that people were experiencing. And certainly that's what's happening in Psalm 137 is someone is entered exile, the psalmist is entered exile, and he's crying out to God. And in that emotional place, he's praying and asking for some really dark stuff. Exile is a hard place to be. As we uh, come this morning uh, to God's word, would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would uh, come and speak to us this morning through me or despite me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. Would you speak to us even through uh, what can be a hard subject for us to talk about? In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are wrapping up our series on Chronicles. Hopefully this is kind of opened us up to, to reading a book that we often kind of skip over. We forget. We think, well, I just read this in First and Second Kings. I don't need to read it again here in Chronicles. But there's some things that the, the chronicler, the person that wrote this book, wants us to learn, wants us to see, and all of God's scripture continues to be breathed into, and, and it is life-giving and is important for us to be learning and, and growing from. We covered nine chapters of genealogy, which introduce us to the major themes of Chronicles. Uh, those genealogy chapters are kind of a, a microcosm of what the larger book of Chronicles is all about. We saw the importance of outsiders being welcomed in. We talked about Obed-Edom from Gath, who is blessed by God. We talked about Jabez and some of the unfaithful tribes of Israel being invited back to Passover. These are outsiders, unfaithful people being invited back into relationship with God. We looked at the importance of worship for the people of God and how it points us towards a New Testament idea of worship, of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, that the importance isn't in the fine minutia of the details of the law, but in coming and bringing everything of who we are before God and worshiping him. We saw that God is also pointing his people to a fuller understanding of shalom, of, of peace, 
in the way that David was forbidden to build the temple because he had much blood on his hands. And his son Solomon comes as the man of Shalom to build the temple. Others enjoy God's rest and peace rather than violence and conflict. We also looked at some character studies of people that were faithful and people that were faithless who weren't following God. A quick summary of our chapters this week, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 33 through 36. We talked about King Hezekiah last week and how he reformed worship. He opened the temple back, he cleared out the idols, and he celebrated the Passover. He celebrated God's saving acts among the people. But following Hezekiah, his son Manasseh, and then his grandson Ammon come, and they do evil in God's sight, and they lead God's people astray. So Josiah comes along, and there is this brief reformation of worship again. Josiah comes, and he tears down the idols. He begins a, a building reconstruction program uh, with the temple. He's hiring all kinds of artisans and masons and uh, all kinds of people to come and to make the temple a beautiful place of worship again. And in this process, they discover a book of the law. Many scholars believe that they probably discover Deuteronomy or part of Deuteronomy as they are cleaning the temple, as they are restoring the building. They discover this book. And it's brought before Josiah and it's opened up and he hears the law read. A fuller understanding of the law than what the people of Judah had been reading for a long time. When Josiah hears the law read, he weeps. He grieves the fact that the people, that the kings before him have not followed God's law. He tries to recover worship. They celebrate the Passover. But ultimately, Judah's long history of unfaithfulness has set consequences in motion. And the people will experience the full consequences, consequences, which is exile. But because of Josiah's faithfulness, because the way he tries to follow God faithfully, tries to restore the law and restore worship, God says, you won't go into exile. But at the end of Josiah's life, he's uh, for a moment unfaithful. There's another king outside of Judah and Israel doing the will of God, and Josiah comes against King Necho from Egypt, and he rebels against God's will by fighting against him. And Josiah dies of a wound suffered in battle, but in his death he dies before Judah will experience exile. Judah then is headed for exile because of their unfaithfulness. They become a, a vassal state to Egypt before Babylon comes and defeats Judah. In 2 Chronicles 36, uh, this is 15 and 16 that Kathy read for us this morning. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent 
persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. Yahweh loves his people and he loved this city. He loved this temple being able to to meet with the people there. And he tried time and time again to send prophets and messengers to call his people back to repentance. He's tried over and over and over to reach out to them. They've consistently turned their back on God. They followed other idols. They haven't been coming and worshiping. They've been trying to trust their own power and their own pride, and they've completely turned their back on God. And so God says, okay, I'll let the consequences of your decisions, your choices, generation in and generation out, to take effect. So the people enter exile. They're taken into captivity in Babylon and later under Persia. Eventually, at the, at the end of Chronicles, Cyrus issues this edict, uh, allows them, the people to return and to begin to rebuild the temple. Babylon tried to reign over its empire by dispersing people, and they would send conquered people groups to different parts of the kingdom and try to assimilate them. They thought that if, if everyone gets rid of their own individual culture and they all just become one Babylonian culture, this is how we will rule and reign. And that didn't seem to work real well for the Babylonians. And so the Persians come in and they kind of change the way things are run and they start to send people back to their, their groups. And we've found, archaeologists have found uh, a similar edict from Cyrus in a number of different cultures where he sent back messengers and said, your God has given me this blessing and told me to go and to rebuild your temple. It was a way of pacifying local people groups to keep them, to, to appease them to a point and keep them under control. It was a benevolent action to pacify exiled people groups. But I want to stop here for a second. Psalm 137 is somebody grieving the loss of Judah and of the temple. And if we look elsewhere in scripture about uh, people grieving the loss of the temple, grieving the fact that they no longer have access to the temple and they feel like they've been abandoned and now they're in this place and they're a vulnerable, exiled people group. But what happens to God's people in exile? Well, there's some major developments that happen for the people of Israel and Judah while they're in exile. First of all, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, is kind of finalized and and codified, or the, the technical word is canonized. They, they bring the, the books of the Old Testament together and they say, this is our scripture. That doesn't really happen until exile. When these people are lost, they're in a foreign land, they've got all these other gods around them, and they say, we need to figure out what we believe. We need to figure out who we are. And so the Old Testament 
comes into a finalized version. We get the writings of the prophets of Daniel and Esther during the exile. We get the self-evaluation of the people of Israel in First and Second Kings and also in Chronicles. It's people that are looking back to figure out, how did we get here? First and Second Kings is looking, what went terribly, terribly, terribly wrong? How did we get here? How did we sin so greatly that we're now in exile? And Chronicles is written at the end of exile or, or just after the end of exile. And it's looking back, trying to figure out how can we move forward? What went right? What went wrong in the past? And now how do we live in the future? We get the establishment of the synagogue system. The people of Judah can no longer go to the temple to worship. It's no longer the center of their life. They have to figure out some other way of meeting together and worshiping together. And so they develop these, this synagogue system of coming together and, and worshiping and, and meeting for instruction and reading the Torah. This is how the New Testament church finds its beginnings. Different passages in Scripture do lament the exile. But exile is a formative time for the people of God to figure out what do they really believe. So what difference does this make for us? Well, this next part maybe is hard to hear, but I think we need to talk about it. Why do I like Chronicles? Why do I think this is a book that's worth our study? Because it has so much to teach us today as God's people face exile again. Let me give you a little bit of the situation in which we find ourselves in our culture in the 21st century today. At one time, the church enjoyed privilege and power and influence in our culture, in Western society. From about 313 A.D., until sometime in the 20th century, depending on which historian and sociologist you're, you're reading, the church was the, the dominant, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Uh, what? Force, yeah, force, uh, dominant um, group in Western society. Was this good? Was this bad? Well, that's a debatable thing. As a person influenced by Anabaptist tradition, I have some real concerns about the church being in positions of power over people. But the church in America and the West no longer has the privilege and the power and the influence that it once did. American culture used to have a general idea of the Christian story, of who Jesus was. They knew what the Bible was. They knew what they could probably name some of the Ten Commandments, if for no other reason than Charlton Heston was in a movie once. But people had a general idea of the Christian story. It was used in school to teach people how to read. It was the dominant force in Western culture. Almost everyone had some kind of Judeo-Christian worldview. Some might call it pseudo-Christianity or civil religion, but for many, it was a genuine faith. But something has changed. A 
And whether you've read about this and studied this or not, you have that feeling that something is different in our culture today. Our culture is more pluralistic. There's a lot of other choices, a lot of other religions that are a part of the makeup and the fabric of Western society. The church no longer has the influence and the power and the privilege that it used to. One example, businesses are open on Sunday. And I know many of you remember times where things were completely closed. Restaurants, gas stations even, closed on Sunday. Regular church attendance is now defined as one Sunday a month when people are doing studies. According to Barna, it's a research organization, the Harrisburg, Lancaster, Lebanon, and York area is number 57 in areas that are now considered post-Christian. That means 34% of the population in that metropolitan area is post-Christian. Uh, they no longer identify uh, as Christian. Many of them don't know the basic beliefs of Christianity. That's in 2017. Why are we here? Why does it feel like we're in some ways in a new kind of exile? Maybe for reasons similar to Chronicles. Maybe the church has gotten sucked into pride and power. Maybe it's a failure to live in faithfulness and discipleship. In many ways, we've turned faith into a once-and-done transaction rather than entering into a relationship and, and following in the way of Jesus that we, we used to call discipleship and following Jesus every day. But I don't want you to hear this sermon this morning as a Rage against heaven. God, why is this happening? Why are we here? I don't want you to hear it as, out there is so bad, it's so evil, it's just, what's going on? Because Chronicles has something to teach us. Chronicles offers us hope. It's written near the end of exile, even after the end of exile, as the people are returning to a rebuilt second temple. And the chronicler tries to offer hope, teaching people about what it looks like to faithfully seek God. One of the interesting things in Chronicles is there is no conversation about rebellion. There's nothing about throwing off Egypt or Babylon or Persia. If you read some of the other writings in the Old Testament, some of the prophets, especially Jeremiah, in, in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to those in exile. And he doesn't say, man, that culture is super bad. They're super evil. You just got to just forget them. Just isolate yourselves. Jeremiah says, take up residence. Build gardens. I like that part. Give your sons and daughters in marriage 
seek the peace and the prosperity of the place you've been called to live. See, a new exile is not all gloom and doom. People in our culture are open to conversations about faith and spirituality. We used to have to defend our faith against people that were coming and attacking it, and we did that with propositional apologetics, and and we had to rationally defend our faith, And, and there's still a reason for that. There's still good purpose in that. But more and more people want to have a conversation about what difference it makes in your life. What is your experience of walking with Jesus? And that sometimes gets a better listen than just coming and defending. We come and we invite people into a conversation and a relationship as long as we're willing to enter a conversation. We have opportunity for confession and realignment. I'm convinced that as we start to talk about a new kind of exile, that there's a place for this Anabaptist expression of following Jesus. It offers unique strengths and opportunities. See, Anabaptists have kind of been on the outside looking in for a long time. They've been a persecuted people group since the very beginning of the movement. Anabaptists have also been critiquing power systems for more than 500 years. We've been talking about living faithfully and walking in the way of Jesus for a long time. Even others in the broader church are starting to recognize some of the the strengths that following Jesus and an Anabaptist expression of faith have. Uh, In the last couple years, Shane Claiborne is one person who's uh, kind of reconnected with a new expression of Anabaptist faith. Uh, The youth heard Jared McKenna the last several years at National Youth Conference talk about finding great value in in seeking Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and, and following hard after Christ every day of our life in radical expressions of faith. What's interesting is some of the times that some of these people have come to the Church of the Brethren. We're, we're long-time Anabaptists. And they come and they say, this stuff is great. Your beliefs are great. Why aren't you doing them? Why aren't you living them out? Why aren't you proclaiming the kingdom of God, seeking the peace and the prosperity of your neighbor's a book uh, called The Naked Anabaptist about that kind of talking about what are the essentials of Anabaptist faith when it's not dressed up in coverings and plain suits and all that. Written by uh, a British man, Stuart Murray. Rediscovering the strengths of this expression of faith. Exile is not about going quietly into the night. It's not about becoming a silent people. But it's also not about fighting back to take back a country or a political system or power. See, Chronicles doesn't advocate for rebellion. Jeremiah's letter talks about taking up residence. After Easter and and Lent, we'll come back to this 
idea of exile and, and look at, at Daniel and Jeremiah and, and how they encourage God's people to live faithfully in the middle of a culture that looks very different than what they left in Judah and what, very different than what they left in Israel. And how do we stay faithful, remain faithful to God, proclaim a different way of living in the middle of a culture that is very different? Exile is where we figure out what we really believe and what we're really committed to. So how do we prepare for exile? Well, some of you have been faithful Josiahs, following God, worshiping God, trying to, to live out faithfully day in and day out, and you may enjoy God's peace without having to enter a full-blown exile. But some of us will enter and are living in exile, a culture that is very different than the one that you lived in and that you grew up in. We will journey as aliens and foreigners in a land that is not our own. And we will be called upon to make hard decisions about what it means to faithfully follow Jesus Christ that we read about in the scripture. But I think that this is so important for us to talk about the church needs to prepare for what's ahead. We can look at, at Europe and see what a full-blown exile looks at, looks like. Huge cathedrals that were once grand places of worship are now restaurants and um, apartment buildings and all kinds of different things or museums or they're just closed. How do we live in this new exile? I'm not grieving the loss of power and privilege and influence. I'm not convinced these have been a good thing for the church in the first place. But I am excited about what a people committed to following Jesus, committed to loving our neighbors, committed to welcoming in the faithful and the faithless, committed to, to welcoming in saints and sinners, Inviting others to come and see what a relationship with Jesus looks like. Committed to living out in radical ways a faithful walk with Jesus. I'm excited about a church that's willing to do that. To focus on Jesus and to live it out day in and day out. we close our service this morning our last hymn is you are salt for the earth we are called to be salt changing the flavor preserving what's around us called to be a light on a hill welcoming people to come and find out what a relationship with Jesus looks like this is how you and I can be living faithfully even in the middle of a new exile. Would you stand and sing with us?